Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change, and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day. I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today. Hi, my name is Julia Borston. I'm author of the new book, When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, How We Can Learn From Them. I'm also a TV reporter. I'm CNBC's senior media and technology reporter, and I am mother of these eight and 11-year-old boys who I adore so much, also wife to an amazing husband who helps me do the juggle of all the things. Yes, that sounds like so many things at once. And those two jobs as author and TV reporter, they're enormous jobs in their own right. They are enormous jobs, but I do think I have an advantage in that my TV job starts very early and ends mid-afternoon. So when people have asked me how I was able to write a book and do my day job as a TV reporter, the answer is I start my job as a TV reporter at 5 a.m. every day. So I'm done with the TV portion of that job at 3 p.m. every day because I work on the West Coast working for an East Coast based network. Goodness. But that still means you're tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My friends would say I need less sleep than the average person, but I definitely do need at least seven hours a night. That's great. So maybe we can talk a little more about that. Tell me about your career journey and what motivated you to then want to write this book in particular. And was it shaped by motherhood in any way? Or have you experienced burnout and that has shaped your career choices? Or have you been able to manage these things in a way that you can take on as much as you're taking on and still be healthy and sane in some ways? My career decisions have been shaped by motherhood in that I love my job at CNBC and I love that I get to interview amazing people and go to fascinating conferences, but I also really love that I can work incredibly hard and have a really fulfilling job and be done at 3 p.m. every day. And yes, I have travel and that's tough as a mom, but now, especially that my kids are older, that the travel piece has gotten easier. To be honest, I rely on my parents a huge amount. My parents are here in Los Angeles That's really influenced my decision to stay in LA for so many years. I had moved out to LA from New York about 15 and a half years ago, about a year into my career at CNBC. And having my parents here while I've had kids has been great because I'm going out of town for a couple of days. And at least one of those days, 
my parents will take the kids overnight. So that has made a big difference in my ability to travel for work. But I think just the mere fact that I know I can have this really gratifying, fascinating job and also know that I could be there for school pickup and then be with my kids in the afternoon has been huge. Having my kids also did, I think, in a way, really liberate me to take more risks at work. That's a weird thing to say. But what I found is that the decision to work and to do this crazy job while having kids made me feel like if I'm going to be away from my kids when they're young and when I feel like they need me, I want to make the most of my time at work. And I also felt like I was less intimidated by my bosses, by my interview subjects, because I realized that they weren't the most important thing. And that my kids at home were the most important thing. And I write about this a little bit in my book, When Women Lead, but I very much felt empowered by being a mother and knowing that what was going on at home with my kids, that was really at the crux of it, what really mattered to me. So therefore I didn't have to be as terrified of making a misstep at work because I knew that I could make a mistake and still go on TV the next day and everything was going to be okay. Or I could pitch an idea and it would get rejected. And that was okay because I got to come home to my family. And in reporting When Women Lead, I was really interested to find the research that found that if you have a distinct identity outside of work, it makes you more resilient at work because you don't take rejection or criticism at work as a personal affront. It's just a, something you said or something you did. It is not who you are. And I had felt that intrinsically, but then to see it in the research when I was reporting my book was very gratifying and reassuring. But then in terms of why I wrote the book, I've had this fascinating career at CNBC, but I felt like there were these stories that I didn't get to tell enough of. And there was this whole narrative arc of these amazing female leaders and their stories weren't getting enough attention or spotlight. And no matter how great my job was at CNBC, I was never going to be able to go into these stories in enough depth in the way I wanted to. And so that's why I want to write a book. And I wanted to do it because I thought it was important for my children. I want my children to grow up in a different kind of environment from a gender equity standpoint than I grew up in. I want them to enter the workforce and have more female bosses than I've ever had. And so I felt like there was this great opportunity for me to work on a project that I would be really proud of and really excited to talk to them about. And luckily, I was in a very lucky situation when the pandemic hit that gave me the time and space to write this book without having to travel and be away from my kids. So reporting a book like this pre-pandemic would have involved a huge amount of travel. I probably would have interviewed many fewer people and spent some time at their offices and homes, but maybe I would have focused in on like a dozen women or maybe two dozen women. But I got to interview 120 women because of the pandemic. And I featured about three dozen of their stories in great detail because I got real access to their homes and lives via Zoom. So I feel like there was a lucky correspondence of a lot of things, but being a parent wanting to influence the business world that my children would be entering and to show them some positive role models of female leaders was a big piece of my decision to do this. That's fantastic. And it's such a great story to hear that upside of motherhood being empowering in the workplace, but also that your position as a mother wanted you to investigate how do we make systems change? And I really must say, I love that last part of your book where you reference the serenity prayer and you talk about 
the serenity prayer tells us to control what we can control. And what you realized from working with this book and, and all these women is, no, actually, we have to control the things that are beyond us so that we can change society. We have to understand the things. There's some things we will never be able to control, but if we understand them, we will better be able to interact with them. Yes. And if we see them as barriers that are real barriers that we need to overcome, then we can start the process of overcoming them. You're right. There's no kind of control. But at the same time, it's not like we can't also influence other people. You're influencing your kids by the stories you're sharing with them. And I really want that for people, for them to realize how much we can empower other people by the stories we tell. And so, yeah, that's exactly why I also do the podcast, because these stories and the examples of what are so inspiring to others. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more than in this context of systems change, because that's exactly where I come from. I want systems to change so that mothers are not so burned out, so that we have more equality at work and at home, so that we can actually do both things in a very healthy way. So tell me about how you started to discover that it was systems change that was happening with these women. And yeah, just tell us more about what you learned and about their role as women leaders. So the reason I wanted to write the book is because at CNBC, I was interviewing some of these rare female leaders, and I saw that women were really defying the odds if they managed to make it to the C-suite at all, because there's so few women in leadership at the world's biggest companies. Women get such little access to venture capital. Last year, women got actually just 2% of venture capital dollars. Over 80% went to all-male founding teams and just a little bit more went to co-ed teams. So I was so impressed by these women and I wanted to tell their stories because I saw, I was personally so inspired by them and I wanted to pay that inspiration forward. But the more women I interviewed, the more I found these commonalities. And then when I dug into the academic research, I found a wealth of data and research about these traits, these skills, these strategies women are more likely to deploy in leadership. And it doesn't matter if you're running a company. Most of us are not running companies. I'm not running a company. Or whether you're just working with a team or whether you're climbing the corporate ladder, these skills and strategies are valuable for everyone. So just to run through a couple of them. Leading with empathy. Women are more likely to have the empathy skill. This is a, a skill that can be learned. It can be studied. I was talking to some women recently about how empathy is oftentimes lumped in with kindness, and it is really different. Empathy is simply the ability to understand what other people are thinking or feeling and to relate to that, which is an incredibly valuable skill if you're trying to motivate your team or connect with a boss or connect with investors or counterparties in negotiations. So there's empathy, there's vulnerability. Women are more likely to lead with gratitude. I was so surprised to find this, but this idea that gratitude correlates with patience and long-term planning and, and decision-making and the fact that women enjoy practicing gratitude. And this is, and men oftentimes feel a little bit more uncomfortable with a feeling of gratitude, but gratitude is something we should all be practicing if it enables us to be patient when we're making decisions. I always tell my kids to be patient, by the way. So it's so interesting to talk about those traits and to think about how I now deploy these skills and strategies very thoughtfully in my job, just as a journalist, but also I think about them in parenting. Now, so I find these skills and strategies that women are more likely to lead with. Once you can identify what they are, they've totally influenced the way I live my life. I live my life professionally, but also how I parent my children. We started the new year with some 
gratitude practices of talking what we're grateful for and committing to talk what we're grateful for every day because there's so much value to practicing gratitude. And then in terms of some of the strategies, women are more likely to lead in a communal approach to bring in perspectives from across an organization rather than top down. They're more likely to take a divergent point of view or divergent perspective. So that means trying to understand the forest and asking tangential questions rather than just I'm rushing, converging towards a decision and trying to focus on like an individual tree within the forest. And that actually enables greater adaptability. There's a lot of data about how women rank higher on adaptability quotient. And I have seen how taking the time to ask the tangential questions means that when the situation changes, you can adapt because you already understand the environment. So these are all really essential things that would be great for anyone to benefit from. So I really believe that men can benefit from the leadership skills and strategies that women are more likely to deploy. And I hope that everyone of any gender can break free from the perception that there is one way to lead and that everyone has to act in the same way. And I really believe that people can benefit from identifying their own personal strengths, the things they enjoy doing, and to use those strengths and skills that they, what they feel strongest at, and use that to unlock their own leadership superpowers. Because there is no one size fits all model. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I particularly love that it does come down to skills that we can learn. Because again, I think people have this sudden sort of understanding, even of something like personality traits, we call them traits, which are things that can't change, but actually they're tendencies, the things we can change, we can be a people pleaser, or we can learn to set boundaries. There's so much we can do in this space. So I love that particularly. And I come from a public health and behavior change background. So skills is the absolute focus of all behavior change. We think it's awareness, but actually it has to move from awareness to skills. And it has to be skills because we can't change things that we don't really understand how to do differently. So it's so important. But that conception too, that you really crossed over to, because for example, again, gratitude, mindfulness, these are public health strategies and public health practices that we've known a lot about in our research for many years about how healthy they are. But they're not always applied to leadership and business. Exactly, exactly. So I love that your book intersected that and that you actually did have examples of women who were leaders in public health as totally different types of medical services. But that's what I thought was so fascinating. You had this intersection between us as individuals can do the things we need to do. We can develop these skills, but that we do have to have this big picture focus. We have to be able to have the forest in our view to be able to see how we change the system. And so many of the women that you featured, as you say, they're very rare, but part of their skill set was that they were focusing on changing systems and had social impact businesses. And that got them the money. Yeah. And also identifying flaws in the system. And I think that men have been able to raise money, to create businesses, to operate successfully within a system that in many ways has not served women as customers or enabled them to generate value as entrepreneurs. So for instance, like the healthcare system has overlooked women as customers for so many years. It's not until recently that we've seen the rise of these companies that are called 
femtech companies or health tech companies that are targeting women's health issues, whether it's fertility or menopause, or even just general health companies that are focused on women's needs. So I have a whole chapter on health in the book because it's such a massive business, particularly here in America. It's such a huge business but the business of it has not always best served customers or particularly women. So that was really interesting to me, but this idea of systems that haven't served women's needs. So I talk about these women who I see as reformers to systems. So Sally Krawcheck was part of the system. She was one of the most powerful women in business. And then she said, I'm going to create a bank that serves just women's needs. Cause I see the system not serving women in terms of targeting, tailoring investments to their needs or retirement planning to their needs. Or Whitney Wolf heard had been at Tinder, which was part of the system of online dating. She said, this system is not serving women. Let me create an alternative that flips the establishment on its head and put women in charge of dating decisions. And so that's what she did with Bumble or even the women in Hollywood who I write about, Reese Witherspoon and Sarah Hardin at Hello Sunshine or Lena Waithe at Hillman Grad. These are content creators who said the system is not creating content that's for, by, and about people who are not men. So let's turn this around and let's create more authentically authored content. And so I think what's so interesting is I think there is an advantage to being outside the system and ironically an advantage to being alienated from the system because you could see flaws in it better. And I think that's one real opportunity for women who have felt alienated or left out of opportunities. They can say, you have a fresher eye, a fresher perspective on what's broken and how to fix it. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. And I know you talked about that, that potentially the way to change systems is to come outside of them and that trying to fix a broken system a different way is to present and create an alternative system. And I think a question for is that a better way to create systems change? Because that's what I'm really all about is how do we on a day-to-day basis create systems change? I have seen so many people who have this combination of an outsider perspective, oftentimes because they're a woman or person of color, but yet has worked inside a system and never fully felt accepted by it or fully felt part of it. It's that combination to me of the insider experience and outsider perspective that enables people to really drive systematic change, at least in terms of what I've seen. Yeah, I think that's so important. And Just thinking along those lines, if we think particularly, for example, about the great breakup and that women, so many women leaders are leaving corporate spaces and going into potentially entrepreneurship, yet it has its own challenges too. So I'm really trying to think about that in terms of understanding that women want to leave that system and potentially there's many women now trying to provide alternative services. But again, then are we leaving the system that is also there, the corporate America system, poorer because we've left it? I'm not obliging anyone to stay in it either, but I'm just really, as a society, like, where is this going? You know, what are the ups and downs? I am very concerned about the great breakup. The Lean in McKinsey study that came out this fall identified that women at the VP level and above are leaving the workforce in record numbers. This is the first time we're seeing senior women say, I've had enough, I'm fed up, I'm leaving. This is different from the great resignation. This is different from quiet quitting. This is senior women who have we've never seen lead the workforce in these numbers. I am very concerned about this. 
because of course I don't blame these women for leaving. The reasons that the study found that they're leaving are so obvious. They feel like they're not getting credit for their work. Other people are getting credit for their work. They don't feel like they're in a supportive environment. I don't blame them for wanting to leave, but I do think the implications of them leaving are potentially massive. What I'm concerned about is I think you could have a cultural impact at the top. You have companies that don't have senior women which could impact the way they make decisions about things like parental leave or even about pay equity or how much they're committing to investing in mentorship and diversity, both in terms of gender and in terms of race. The other thing I'm worried about is mentorship because women are more likely to invest in mentorship. So you just lose those women as mentors, but also role models. Those women are essential role models, not just for women, but for men. They establish the pattern for younger men that this is what a boss looks like. And if they leave, I think there could be a massive ripple effect. On the other hand, if they go and start companies, then they're hiring people and there's a lot of potential then for them to drive change. So that's where I think there's the potential, or maybe I don't know what the data is about where they're going. We'll see if some of them join other companies that have better corporate environments for women. I think it's a good wake-up call for corporate America, though. So I hope corporate America and the companies that are losing these women understand how potentially dangerous that is and are taking steps to address it by thinking long and hard about their corporate cultures. I think the risk is if those women retire or if they become solopreneurs and just do consulting, then there's a whole generation of wisdom that's being lost from the culture. And that was what was so incredible too about that report. One was that younger women were watching this and then saying, okay, I can understand why they're leaving and I don't want that path either. And that also men were saying, I want to be in a company that is more gender diverse because it's a better company to work for. Again, it's like, when are we going to get to this tipping point of it being so bad or so dangerous that it changes in another direction? So yeah, let's talk a little bit more then about some of the ways the women that you interviewed approached systems change and made impact, social impact, large social impact, so that we can see these positive alternatives of how they can be. When I think about systems change, this may feel like a funny example, but I think about Jennifer Holmgren, who is the CEO of a company called Lanza Tech. And she looks and sounds nothing like a iconic, stereotypical CEO. She's a Colombian immigrant. She's petite. She talks in a very soft voice. And she spent the first part of her career up until she was 50 in the energy industry. She worked for Honeywell and divisions of Honeywell, working at a traditional oil industry company where she was always interested in alternative energy. And she had this crazy idea that you could turn pollution into fuel, which is what she's doing now at Lanza Tech. But one thing that was so interesting to me about her whole approach is that she never felt like she had to do things the way that other people did them because she didn't fit anyone's stereotype of anything. She was outside any pattern anyone could have matched her to. So she felt liberated to do things her own way. She was already disappointing their expectations. So she said, what does it matter if I do things my own way? And I think that's been true about the way she leads. I think that's been true about the way she manages teams. But she figured, I already don't fit any expectations. Let me chart my own path. And I think it's when people feel liberated to break free from the rules, not simply because they want to be iconoclastic, but because they don't feel constrained by the rules. That's when there's real opportunity. 
So it was interesting talking to her just about that whole concept. And then I also think about, about this woman, Dr. Toya Najai, who's the CEO of City Black Health. And she grew up in Nairobi and Kenya. She went to school at Stanford and Cambridge, but she had this amazing experience working in Sierra Leone, trying to fix a pediatric hospital there, which gave her an amazing perspective on the American healthcare system. So I think she could take all these different experiences she had to really bring a set of fresh eyes and see what was wrong with the American healthcare system. I talked about how women have been overlooked by health tech companies for so long, but I think what was so interesting about Dr. Toyna Jai is that she saw that everyone wasn't being served, particularly lower income patients. And it was her experience trying to fix some very fundamental issues at a pediatric hospital in Sierra Leone, such as running water, that created this approach that she takes now. And it's what I call the fixing the water supply. And this idea that when she was in Sierra Leone, there's a pediatric hospital, she had come to help the medical procedures there improve. She wanted to help the medical care get better. But what she saw when she got there is that there was no running water coming out of the taps. And theoretically, there was supposed to be the building was connected to the water system, but there was no running water. And so she said, we can't be in a situation where doctors are bringing water into the hospital in buckets. This is ridiculous. Until we fix the pipes, we can't actually make the hospital better. And so she invested in checking out the pipes, hiring a plumber, fixing the connections and the pump that was broken. And then when she got to Boston Medical and she was trying to help figure out what was going on there, she said, what is the water supply that is broken? What is the fundamental underlying issue that's not about the medicine itself? And it seems like it's only tangentially related, but actually is so fundamental that you can't do anything until that issue improves. And this idea of taking a step back, understanding the fundamental challenges is absolutely something she did when she created City Block Health, which is about building trust with patients figuring out what systems you need to put in place so they comply with the advice of their doctors. But I think about this in so many situations. What is the water? What is the fundamental underlying issue? I think about Jennifer Hyman creating Rent the Runway. Her product is about helping women not have to buy items that they don't want to own for more than one night. She's serving a different purpose. It's not about just dress rental. It's about this idea of giving access to closet in the cloud. So I think so many of the women took a step back and said, what is really the problem here? For Jen Hyman, it was the fact that her sister went into credit card debt because she wanted a dress for one night. It wasn't about tax rental. It was about something about identity and image and all of these different things. So I think the ability to take a step back, see a problem, and what the real problem is that's underlying it has enabled so many of the women I interviewed to drive change. Yeah, and that's so important. And I'm glad you mentioned the rent the runway one, because that was one of my favorite examples, because she used the data that she was collecting to feed it back into the fashion industry and change the size issues, the sizeism in that industry. That was just such an amazing way that new data changed things. Yeah. And by the way, it's odd to me, I really believe in the power of data, but just to give a little bit more on that rent the runway example, what she found is that women were renting the larger sizes in such dramatic numbers that she could go to the designers or even designers who had never made plus size clothing before. You need to create clothing in size 14 plus because these women are demanding it on our site. And that could drive change, not just for the clothing that was being created to be rented, but that was going into retail. So having that data that just wasn't being collected before ended up being so valuable, not just for rent the runway, but also for the designers. 
Exactly, exactly. And so what you're describing to is really some of the fundamentals of public health. So we look at the root causes and the example you gave with the pump, that was the spaces of public health with Jon Snow <laughs> closing off the pump to stop cholera in the UK. And when we think of what we've learned from COVID and infections, it's still a challenge to be in public health because it's not easy to communicate the things that make it helpful for us to be healthier. So that is one of the bases is what is the root cause and then how do we prevent it? But also I think back to what you said about the leadership style of the women, asking more questions. So a part of a fundamental public health concept is that we have change and we have things that influence at the individual, interpersonal, organizational, institutional, society, governmental. And if you as a leader start to actually ask questions, not just about how are you doing at work today, but how are things going in the family? How is it about being in this workplace? What else in society makes it difficult for you to show at work today? So if you as a leader actually start to ask questions that embrace the full life experience that everybody has, I also believe you become a better leader. Not only do you have that power to transition when something goes wrong because you know more about the situation but you also have so much more empathy and compassion for the people you're working with because as leaders and people trying to make change like we often struggle and fail with that but when we realize lots of other people are struggling as well then we have compassion for them and then compassion for ourselves because we're not alone so for me this fundamental understanding of systems and how they influence us and how we can understand them better to help other people more. It is so core to, as I say, to public health, but also what I want for women in the workplace and for leaders. Absolutely. But it's interesting because I do think it's important to separate empathy from compassion and to understand that empathy leads to compassion. I would say empathy is probably essential for compassion, but I have talked to a number of men who've said to me, okay, so let's talk about your way you found and women are better at empathy, but that's just about being kind. That's about compassion. I said, no, they're separate things. One can lead to the other, but empathy can also be deployed so strategically. And you need to understand that there is a business value, right? It's not philanthropic to be empathetic. There is a true business value to understanding what your employees are going through, to understanding what your customers really need, to understanding what your boss wants, what your investors need, to really putting yourself in their shoes. There's a business value to that, not just a greater human value. And I think that this idea that we need to be taking these interpersonal skills and deploying them in the business world, I do hope that can be separated from the idea that it's just better for society, because I sometimes think people don't necessarily do things because they're better for society. They need to feel like there's a business incentive to do them, which is why I talk about all these skills and strategies is it's not just that they're the right thing to do. They're actually better for business. But that's why I think it's so interesting that empathy is oftentimes or vulnerability are oftentimes undervalued as business traits because they're seen purely as interpersonal advantages or, or being tied to kindness. Yes, that's so interesting. And I suppose what I understand is compassion is empathy plus action, because you can understand where somebody comes from. But if you don't take any action to change the situation or they're in or to provide additional support. Now, again, it's not that leaders have to go solve the personal problems that people have. And I think a lot of times leaders want to have that boundary and saying, these are their personal problems. I'm not solving those. But at the same time, they certainly can provide 
support, whether that's even through professional development or coaching so that people can be more productive at work. And that's the thing is I think making that connection, it's a business case. And if you can be empathetic to your employees, take action to support them, then they will be more successful and the company will be more successful. I think drawing that line really should help illustrate to companies why it's so important to have empathy and to take action on it because they'll be more successful. It's not about being philanthropic. It's about being more successful. Yes. And I interviewed one of my early interviews was with a leadership development expert. And she was explaining that not everyone has to care. You can't oblige people to care, but you can make sense from the business argument of why to do these things. And yes, that they definitely have business advantages. And I think that was the other thing too, that your book and your research was showing is that when people actually looked at the return on investment, (laughs) that investing in these women was a much higher return. Yeah, absolutely. Whether you're investing in startups or female CEOs of public companies, women tend to yield higher returns. And it's interesting, if you're looking at startups, they tend to yield returns to investors a year earlier on average. So again, we have this data, maybe it's not as well known as we want it to be. And that's why we need books like yours out there. But do you think we still don't have that understanding of the business case? And that's what we continue to do? Or where do you think we're at in terms of how do we make change? We know there is a business case to do this. So what next? I think that's why I wrote the book. I think that the data is there. The headlines have been out there, but it hasn't been correlated and put together in one place. And I think one reason why there hasn't been more change or more investment in women or more female CEOs is because they're still in such a minority in that statistically, you may intellectually understand that it makes sense. But if you're an investor and you have so few examples then it's hard to wrap your head around the idea that this is what a leader looks like. She looks like a woman. And there's been so much fascinating research about pattern matching and the human instinct to try to put things into existing patterns. And guess what? The pattern of a CEO is a white man. And so women are outliers to that dominant pattern. And it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that or to remove that bias. That's what a leader looks like from their decision-making around anything, whether it's a board or whether it's investors, women still do not look like what CEOs or founders are. They're still too much in the minority. So that's why I think it's so important to elevate the success stories of women who have defied the odds and are doing phenomenal things to change systems, to reinvent old businesses, to create entirely new businesses, to shine a spotlight on their stories, which is what I do with the narratives in my book, when women lead, and also to show the data about why what they're doing is so valuable. So that's really why I wrote the book. But I do think it's really important to elevate the success story so people don't think that every female founder is like Elizabeth Holmes. And I think a couple of these high-profile disasters have a really outsized effect on people's perception of women in leadership. Yes, and that is such a problem. So yeah, I really value so much what the book has done and the messages it's bringing. And it was so inspirational. I know you wrote it to be inspirational. It was so inspirational. I got so much hope from this. And I'm so glad we're sharing it with other women on this podcast who may be struggling in their situation. They may be at burnout and hearing that other women have succeeded and that it's possible. Again, we need these role models. And so it's this chicken and egg, though. I keep saying this to myself. We need more women leaders so that we can have 
different policies so that more leaders can come up. So I'm still in the conundrum of the chicken and egg. It is a chicken and egg problem, but I think that the women leaders who do succeed need to have their stories told more loudly. But it's interesting, back to the burnout, for me, I wrote this book during the pandemic. I did nothing but my day job on CNBC, report this book and be with my family for probably a year. But while I was burning the candle at both ends, the fact that I got to talk to these women, that's what prevented burnout for me because I was so inspired by their stories that it enabled me to really draw on that as a source of strength. And it was also a distraction from what was going on in the world, which was pretty scary and crazy in terms of COVID. And to be able to retreat to the retreat from the my day job of covering the business world, which was a scary and unknown place, to the value and the power and the inspiration of women who are changing the world. Every day I found it rejuvenating and I got to go and have dinner with my kids and tell them what I was learning. And to me, that's value to me personally. And then what I got to bring to my family, these amazing stories of companies and women and stories and inspiration, that's what kept me going through a period of an incredibly hard work. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence, and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day and help you lead real change with evidence-based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried and failed. Because I know you have what it takes and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading-real-change.com. That's www.leadingrealchange.com. Feel the pain.